All right, guys, it's time for another shout out on the show. Today, we want to shout out two people, Sandra Richardson, as well as Aaron McCreary. Thank you both so much for joining at least the $10 tier on our Patreon. So guys, if you want to support the show, you can also go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Coffee and sign up for whatever you're comfortable with each month to support the show. All right, Nick. So, um, you know, I feel like as I'm getting to the end of my fellowship, I still feel like I need to go back and remind myself about all of the general OBGYN topics as well as some primary care stuff. So how do I do that? Yeah. You know, our friends at the OBG Project actually have a new sister website that's come out called the PC Med Project or the Primary Care Med Project um, that focuses in on a lot of things from medicine that we may have forgotten and probably that our family medicine and internal medicine listeners completely remember, but they just need a better resource to be able to get those bullet-pointed summaries. Yeah, as I'm looking through this website, I see a ton of great information. It looks like they've also broken this down into specialty areas, so not just your normal alerts and things like that, but also looking at review of cancer screening, if you need to like look at some endocrine topics, even some dermatology topics. This is really great for anyone who wants to review some of your basic primary care subjects. So definitely check out the PC Med Project at pcmedproject.com. But if you're an OBGYN resident, remember too that you can get the OBG Project and OBG First as well as that resident core curriculum absolutely free heading to our website at www.creagsovercoffee.com, checking out our sidebar and getting signed up. Welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Over Coffee. Coffee. Today, we are back with another essential topic that somehow we've missed. So today, we're going to be talking about advanced maternal age. Nick, what are our learning objectives? Yes, we're going to review that cruel moniker of AMA. Um, First, we'll define advanced maternal age and review the origins of where AMA came from. Um, We'll then discuss risks of pregnancies in patients as they get older, just generally speaking. And then we'll finally talk about the management points of pregnancies in patients who are 35 and older. Um, Just recently, in August of 2022, there was an ACOG and SMFM obstetric care consensus number 11 regarding pregnancy at age 35 years and older. We'll have that publication linked on our website if you'd like to read along. Age is just a number, I think they say, Faye. (laughs) um, In the end, though, why do we actually care about age and pregnancy? So overall, in terms of if we look at the trend, the CDC from 2020 has shown that there continues to be this upward trend in the mean age of pregnant people in in the United States. And so as of 2020, about 19% of all pregnancies are in people 35 and older. Um, And again, if we kind of look at the historical trend, the mean age of people having their first birth in 2020 – was about 27.1 compared to 21.4 in 1970. Um, And we know that pregnancies in patients that are older are associated with higher risks, even if they come into pregnancy completely healthy. And so the next question then is, well, why is this 35 the cutoff, right? Um, So really, it's been this historical figure that we've used. And the threshold is pretty arbitrary. Um, You know, originally it was this cutoff because at that point, the risk of having a miscarriage from an amniocentesis was the same as the risk of having T3 
So it was about one in 250, one in 300 at that time. Uh, But really, we found that most of the risks that we get concerned about are actually associated with an older age, um, so later in life. So really people who are 40 and older even. But um, because of you know the conventions, we are still going to be talking about advanced maternal age on this specific podcast as potentially 35 and older. So um, let's then you know talk about the true definition, Nick. So really what is that definition of AMA or advanced maternal age? When is it 35? When they come into pregnancy at 35? When they end the pregnancy at 35? Yeah, I think surprisingly, we actually miss this one a lot. So AMA is actually specifically defined as patients who are aged 35 or older at the estimated date of delivery. Um, And so when you're in your problem list, if you're looking at a 34-year-old who turns 35 in the next Mm -hmm. 40 weeks, then theoretically that patient actually gets lumped into the AMA category as well. Um, No, again, as you mentioned, Faye, this threshold is selected based on evidence of declining fertility and concerns surrounding an increased risk of genetic abnormalities in babies born to those over the age of 35. Um, But just because you turn 35, it's not like you hit this magical number that your pregnancy becomes super high risk all of a sudden. We have to remember that this risk is on a continuum. So just like when a medical student becomes an intern, when a chief becomes an attending, it's not like some magic switch gets flipped when you go from age 35 to age 35. And as we kind of think about this too, we also have to think that more recent studies really stratify risks by age group. Um, And this is fortunate. You know, it gives us a little bit more advantage versus the categorical distinction of age 35 and older or not. So now we're kind of seeing more studies that divide out patient age in five-year increments. So looking at 35 to 39, 40 to 44, et cetera, and so forth. All right, so we've covered definitions, Faye. Let's get into some of the things that we believe are risks of advanced maternal age in pregnancy. Yeah, so in terms of pregnancy risks, compared to those who are of younger age, patients who are 35 or over at the time of delivery are at a higher risk of things like gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, labor dystocia, and C-section. And similarly, their fetuses or neonates are at increased risk of preterm delivery, NICU admission, and low birth weight. But again, um, like you said before, these risks are on a continuum with risks increasing progressively with advancing age, particularly in those older than 40 at the time of delivery. And so, you know, when we're looking at these cohort studies like you've mentioned where they're kind of separating out those ages by five-year gaps, 10-year gaps, it's really the patients who are 45 to 54 who are at the highest risk of overall complications. And then the other thing to consider is that as people start to age, there's also more prevalence of chronic medical disorders. So if you are over the age of 35, um, you are more likely to have a chronic medical disorder compared to somebody who is 20, for example. And these include things that are like obesity, hypertension, diabetes, and studies have shown that pregnant patients who are 35 or older are two to four times more likely to have things like chronic hypertension and nearly twice as likely to have type 2 diabetes as pregnant people who are 25 to 29. And we know that these are also risk factors by themselves um, for poor pregnancy outcomes. All right. So now that we know those risks, Nick, um, I kind of want to start talking about, you know, what are some of the different management strategies that we have for pregnant patients older than the age of 35 at the time of delivery to try and maybe decrease some of these things? 
Yeah, so we're going to talk about a number of different features today in management. Um, but to start, let's think about one that probably a lot of you who practice obstetrics are already very familiar with, which is the prevention of preeclampsia in this population. Um, there is an increased risk of preeclampsia in pregnant patients older than age 35. And in one large meta-analysis, the risk of preeclampsia progressively increased with increasing age. This difference was only statistically significant in women aged 40 and older, though. In the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force Systematic Review, there was a reduction in risk of preeclampsia, preterm birth, small for gestational age, and perinatal mortality in individuals who are at increased risk of preeclampsia who took low-dose aspirin prophylaxis. Um, and so on the basis of that, the USPSTF recommends starting low-dose aspirin at 81 milligrams a day, ideally between 12 and 16 weeks of gestation, and continuing daily through delivery in those at high risk of preeclampsia. Those who are 35 and older, that counts as a moderate risk of preeclampsia. So it's reasonable in those who are 35 and older, um, or those who have an additional risk factor, or who also have a high risk factor, consider low-dose aspirin therapy. Just as a quick review, let's go through some of those risk factors. So the moderate risk factors, again, in addition to advanced maternal age over age 35 are nulliparity, obesity with a BMI of greater than or equal to 30, a family history of preeclampsia, um, black race, which the USPSTF notes is a proxy for underlying racism, lower income, personal history factors such as low birth weight or previous adverse pregnancy outcome, or those with IVF pregnancy. Again, you need to have two of those factors to technically qualify to receive low-dose aspirin prophylaxis. If you have one high-risk factor, that's also considered a reason. And so if you have someone age 35 or older and they have these things as well, you should definitely be using aspirin. So these high-risk factors, again, are a history of preeclampsia, a multi-fetal gestation, a history of chronic hypertension, a history of pregestational diabetes, history of chronic kidney disease, or a history of an autoimmune disease. Man, All looking right. at these, Nick, who doesn't have a moderate risk factor? <laughs> well, I think our discussion, Faye, on universal aspirin might be for another podcast. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know today we were supposed to talk about advanced maternal age, but thanks for allowing us to steer a course into aspirin and preeclampsia yep. prevention <laughs> land for a moment. But let's bring it back to AMA. Um, what is the next factor that we should think about in terms of our pregnancy evaluation and management? Yeah, so the next thing to think about is genetic screening. And this is because over time, we know that as our patients age, there is a decrease in oocyte not just quantity, but also quality. And this decline actually begins to accelerate in the fourth decade of life, likely due to a myriad of hormonal levels regulating the ovaries. Um, and we also know that an individual's fertility will decline with increasing age. And the frequency of aneuploidy, um, conversely, will increase with their age. But not all aneuploidies or genetic abnormalities increase with age. We know that, for example, that the sex chromosome trisomies and other trisomies will increase uh, with age, but sex chromosome monosomies and copy number variants, for example, so thinking of your like 22Q11 deletion syndromes, those don't seem to be associated with maternal age. So in other words, they're independent of maternal age at the time of pregnancy. 
So given these risks, pregnant individuals should be aware of their risks for different types of aneuploidy as well as other types of genetic abnormalities, and clinicians should be ready to discuss certain types of prenatal genetic testing, both screening and diagnostic testing with their patients. And really that decision should be made between the clinician and the patient. Now we do have a whole episode on prenatal screening, um, and so we definitely encourage you to check out that episode. But just to kind of give you a sense of those increased risk of um, chromosomal abnormalities. If we look at second trimester pregnancies based on maternal age at term, um, we can see that, for example, the risk of having Down syndrome or trisomy 21 in someone who's 20 years old, the risk is very low. It's one in 1,250 compared to somebody who is age 35 that risk increases to 1 in 294. And then for someone who's age 40, that risk increases to 1 in 86. So overall, what this means is that we should talk to our patients about potentially getting genetic screening if that's something that they want. And then the last thing to talk about is potentially there is some conflicting data about whether or not there's increased risk of major congenital anomalies affecting the fetus in patients who are 35 years of age or older at the time of delivery. So because of this, a detailed fetal anatomic survey should be recommended for all of our patients. All right, Nick. Well, Let's move on to the next thing, which is, you know, we talked about the increased risk of having low birth weights. So what are some of the things that we can do to try and decrease the risk of growth abnormalities? Absolutely. No, and actually, I think to take it one step back, Faye, it's interesting to note that actually both large for gestational age and small for gestational age occurs in neonates at higher frequency with advancing maternal age. Um, so there's sort of this bimodal distribution mm -hmm. of increasing abnormality as one gets older with pregnancy. Most of this occurs in patients who are aged 40 and above. Um, there's really not great evidence out there to recommend a third trimester growth assessment in patients who are age 35 to 39 in the absence of any other risk factors. But given this concern for patients aged 40 and above, both SMFM and ACOG recommend a growth ultrasound in the third trimester, again, for those patients who are 40 or older. There's no data to guide any sort of things regarding timing or frequency of ultrasound assessments in individuals 40 or older, but at least a single time third trimester growth is recommended in that population. Probably one of the scarier ones to consider, Faye, is stillbirth in this population. I think that there's been some pendulum swinging back and forth about who gets testing, when testing should be considered, so what's the verdict? Yeah. So as you said, you know, there is an increased risk of stillbirth with advancing age and pregnancy. And so just to kind of give us a sense of what that's like, in 2013, the stillbirth rate in the U.S. was six out of a thousand pregnancies that extended beyond 20 weeks of gestation. But if we look at patients who are between the ages of 40 to 44, that increases to 10.1 out of a thousand births. And for patients who are 45 or above at the time of delivery, that increases to 13.8 out of 1,000 births, so more than twice the stillbirth risk compared to the general population. Um, and then similarly, if we look at the risk of stillbirth um, at 37 to 41 weeks, this was one out of 382 pregnancies for those patients who are 35 to 39 um, compared to one out of 267 in patients who are 40 and older. 
But overall, the benefit of antenatal fetal surveillance to reduce the risk of stillbirth in this population remains unknown um, because there have been a lack overall of interventional trials or adequately powered observational studies to examine this very rare outcome of stillbirth. You can imagine that you're going to need a huge population to be able to establish a difference in a study. But ACOG and SMFM have established a guide that suggests that the surveillance for conditions where stillbirth occurs more frequently than eight out of a thousand. So for those who are 40 or older at the time of delivery, because that risk is 10 out of a thousand births for stillbirth, they still recommend antenatal surveillance and think that that is reasonable. So the recommendation is to potentially initiate some type of antenatal surveillance between 32 to 36 weeks of gestation. Um, But there's unfortunately insufficient evidence for those who are 35 to 39 years of age. So the practice may differ depending on your institution. And then finally, regarding delivery, the rate of stillbirth at 39 weeks in women who are 40 or older is nearly the same as the rate of stillbirth for patients who are age 25 to 29 who are beyond 41 weeks of gestation. So delivery in a well-dated pregnancy at 39 weeks of gestation or later um, should be considered for individuals who are 40 or older at the time of delivery. The evidence, again, for that elevated stillbirth risk in individuals 35 to 39 is still not sufficient to support a clear recommendation regarding timing of delivery beyond routine practice. All right. So I think, you know, the last thing that we should probably touch on and the thing that they also touch on in this obstetric care consensus is the issue of health equity. Um, So talk to us a little bit more about that, Nick. Yeah. So I think, you know, as we've mentioned on the show in varying circumstances before, Faye, there's inequity in terms of maternal mortality and perinatal outcomes in patients who identify as non-Hispanic Black, as well as those who identify as American Indian or Alaskan Native. Um, No, from a maternal mortality perspective, maternal mortality as determined by the CDC Maternal mortality as determined by the CDC shows a pregnancy-related mortality ratio 3.2 for non-Hispanic black women um, compared to non-Hispanic white women. So again, a threefold increased risk. But when you look and stratify by age, that ratio actually increases to 4.9 for non-Hispanic black women between ages of 35 to 39 and is increased just slightly to 3.6 for those aged 40 and older comparing non-Hispanic black to non-Hispanic white women. Um, And so we see kind of an increasing risk of mortality with advancing maternal age and the inequity gets larger, particularly for non-Hispanic black women. With respect to fetal outcomes, we see that preterm birth, small for gestational age, and stillbirth occur more frequently in some racial and ethnic groups that are disproportionately affected by these social and structural barriers to care. Note, as an example here, the infant mortality rate for non-Hispanic Black and American Indian and Alaska Native infants is about 10.7 per thousand births and 7.9 per thousand births, respectively. Um, That's double the rates, just for contextual information, of infant mortality for non-Hispanic white infants. It's not entirely clear the exact best strategy to overcome these inequities. And we know that this is the focus of a lot of research, a lot of research done by you folks who listen to us out there. But we always want to just stress that OBGYNs and other professionals need to consider systems-based as well as individual practice strategies to reduce race and ethnic disparities in care and outcomes, um, and looking at this by age, too. From a systems perspective, no, we really need to understand 
from an internal sense and assessment of barriers as well as facilitators to providing equitable care, implementing unconscious bias and communication training, um, and advocating for patient input in their decision making ultimately. Um, again, a, not to be a downer note at the end there, but hopefully a call to action. Um, and I'm really actually thrilled that in this consensus care document, you no know, ACOG and SMFM kind of yeah. make it a point to add in this health equity piece. Absolutely. All right, Faye. Well, I think that does it for this episode on advanced maternal age and pregnancy. Why don't we try and summarize? Sure. So we started off the episode by talking about why we cared about age and pregnancy, and we knew, know that there's an increasing trend of increasing maternal age um, at the time of delivery. We use 35 as a cutoff because of an arbitrary historical figure, but truly we know that there's a continuum in terms of increased risk as we get older and become pregnant. Um, we do know that in recent studies, they will stratify the risk by age groups. So for example, they'll divide the patients out by five-year increments, but for the purposes of this document, that we have been referencing and also for our podcast, we are going to define advanced maternal age as patients who are 35 years or older at the estimated date of delivery. Broadly speaking, there are multiple risks in folks who are pregnant at advanced maternal age. It, compared to those who are younger age, patients who are 35 years or older at the time of delivery have higher risk of gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, labor dystocia, cesarean delivery, preterm delivery, NICU admission, and low birth weight for the infants. And it's important to know, too, that chronic medical disorders also are more prevalent in individuals at age 35 or older, particularly things that really matter in pregnancy, like hypertension, diabetes, and obesity. Remember, these risks are all on a continuum. Risks increase progressively with advanced maternal age, and particularly in those age 40 or older at time of delivery, the risk seems to be particularly pronounced. We then discuss different management strategies to try and decrease some of these risks. So the first is the prevention of preeclampsia, and there is data that suggests that those with the two moderate risk factors, as well as those with one high risk factor, um, should take low-dose aspirin to try and decrease their risk of preeclampsia. And so one of those moderate risk factors is defined as um, advanced maternal age of 35 years or older. From a genetic screening perspective, remember there's a decrease in oocyte quality over time as well as a decrease in the number of oocytes. And therefore, kind of with decreasing quality, the frequency of aneuploidy generally increases with age and gets to sort of a crest point at age 35 of a risk of trisomy 21 of about 1 in 300 and a rate of any chromosomal anomaly of about 1 in 85. We also should remember that advanced maternal age does not convey any increased risk for rarer chromosomal anomalies or deletion syndromes. Those are constant about 1 in 270 for all patients. There's conflicting data about the increased risk of major congenital anomalies in patients who are 35 years or older. A detailed fetal anatomic survey should be done for anybody who meets the criteria for AMA um, to be able to assess better for these aneuploidy and potential anomaly risks. For patients who are at increased maternal age, there's both increased risk for large for gestational age and small for gestational age neonates. Therefore, for patients who are age 40 or above, SMFM and ACOG does recommend a third trimester growth scan. Unfortunately, there's insufficient evidence to recommend the same ultrasound for those that are 35 to 39 years of age. In terms of stillbirth prevention, there's certainly increased risk of stillbirth with advancing age in pregnancy, particularly for patients aged 40 and above. Um, the benefit of antenatal fetal surveillance is generally unknown, but 
ACOG and SMFM have established guidance that suggests that surveillance should be used in conditions where stillbirth occurs more frequently than 8 per 1,000 pregnancies. Therefore, for those who are 40 or older at the time of delivery, surveillance is reasonable to start sometime between 32 and 36 weeks gestation, and there's insufficient evidence for those aged 35 to 39. For delivery, the rate of stillbirth in those who are 39 weeks gestation in patients aged 40 or older is just about the same as those aged 25 to 29 who are at or beyond 41 weeks gestation. Therefore, delivery in well-dated pregnancies at 39 weeks or later for individuals 40 or older should be considered. Again, the evidence for stillbirth risk and the benefit of a 39-week delivery is less clear for those aged 35 to 39. And lastly, we touched on the health equity perspective of all of this. So we know that despite um, some of the changes that have occurred, that there is still an equity in terms of maternal mortality and perinatal outcomes in patients who identify as non-Hispanic Black, as well as those that identify as American Indian and Alaskan Native. And we know that this health disparity for increasing risk of mortality actually increases as patients get older. We also know that there's increased risk of Uh, infant mortality for non-Hispanic Black and American Indian and Alaskan Native infants compared to non-Hispanic white infants. So overall, we as OBGYNs and other OB professionals should consider systems-based and individual strategies to reduce these racial and ethnic disparities in care and outcomes, and also look at systemic ways of trying to uh, decrease barriers and increase facilitators to providing equitable care. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Kriogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media on Twitter at Kriogs Over Coffee 1, at Facebook and Instagram at Kriogs Over Coffee. And if you want to support the show, you can go ahead and go onto our Patreon and make a donation to us. That's at www.patreon.com slash Over Coffee. We have show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes and that Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, CraigsOverCoffee.com. And if you have suggestions for this show, a correction, or just want to say hi to us, go ahead and email us at CraigsOverCoffee at gmail.com. 